Well, each uh, Remembrance Sunday, we commemorate the ending of the First World War uh, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month uh, of 1918. And uh, this year, as uh, Dan said a little bit earlier, is the 100th anniversary of the end of what was called the Great War, which claimed over 16 million lives. Since then, there have been another world war, as we know, and other wars around the world where many people have lost their lives fighting for the freedom that we have. And this morning, as we continue in our series on prayer, I'd like to just share an enthralling story of a miracle that happened uh, during World War II at Dunkirk on the northern French coast. On the 10th of May, 1940, Hitler unleashed a, a military onslaught against France and Belgium. And within days, the British army were outmaneuvered. And uh, our British soldiers, along with the Allies, found themselves with the backs, their backs to the sea and hemmed in by enemies. The German high command boasted that they were proceeding to annihilate the British army. The destruction of the British army was imminent. And Prime Minister um, Winston Churchill was preparing an announcement to the nation of an unprecedented military catastrophe involving the capture and death of a third of a million soldiers. These were very dark days. But it didn't happen. On the 23rd of May, 1940, King George VI called for a national day of prayer to be held on the following Sunday, Sunday the 26th of May. And in a national broadcast, he instructed the people of the UK to turn back to God with a spirit of repentance and plead for divine help. And millions of people that Sunday, right across Britain, flocked to churches praying for deliverance. And we can see that in this uh, astonishing photograph, which is of a long queue outside uh, Westminster Abbey. Astonishing, isn't it? Uh, this week as well, I came across um, a short newsreel from Pathé News, which I'd just like to uh, play you now. For those uh, listening on podcast, that hyperlink for that news reel can be included on the Life Notes, Life Notes uh, section. But what an astonishing report that was. I've watched that so many times this week. Uh, I just found it utterly amazing, incredible to modern ears. It is well for us to show the world that we still believe in divine guidance. In the laws of Christianity, may we find inspiration and faith from this solemn day. How many of you could imagine those words being given on national news today? 
You see, the same day that the nation prayed, uh, an urgent request went out for boats of all shapes and sizes to cross the English Channel to rescue this besieged army. And a call was ultimately answered by over 800 vessels. So what happened? Let me give you a little bit of the story as I know it. In a decision that infuriated uh, Hitler's generals and still baffles historians, Hitler ordered that his army should halt. Now, no one understands quite why he gave that command. Had they continued, they would have defeated the Allied forces and they would have been destroyed and the war would have taken a very different, darker, more terrible path. No one understands that. But then there were two other events immediately that followed. Firstly, there was a violent storm over Dunkirk, grounding the German Luftwaffe, which had been killing thousands of soldiers on the beaches. And then secondly, the day after, there was an, a great calm which descended over the channel, uh, the like of which had not been seen for a generation or so it was told, which allowed hundreds of these tiny boats to sail across and rescue 335,000 soldiers, including 140,000 French, Belgian, Dutch and Polish soldiers. Many of them were to return four years later to liberate Europe. A former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said, I'm sure with his tongue very firmly placed in his cheek, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. You see, many might argue that what happened there at Dunkirk was a, a wonderful coincidence which saved the lives of a third of a million men and ultimately caused the deliverance of Europe from a tyrannical enemy. I personally don't think it was a coincidence at all. You make your own choice. I don't. And it was, certainly wasn't considered a, um, a coincidence at the time either because on the 9th of June, there was a national day of thanksgiving that was declared. And people began to talk about the miracle of Dunkirk, a phrase which was encouraged even by Churchill himself. You see, in that one event, I believe, we see prayer and action holding hands. The nation had come to pray, to bring their need before God, and at the same time, 800 uh, boats and ships of all shapes and sizes that were required went across the channel to do the work that they needed to. The channel which was like a mill pond on the day to rescue those soldiers. Now in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, we see another amazing example of prayer and action side by side. But before we jump into that passage that we're going to read this morning, I want to give you some background, tell you a little bit of what's going on, because my guess is that probably some of you at least won't have a clue about Nehemiah and what's going on in this story. Some really, really interesting history is happening here. On many occasions, God warned the nations of Israel in the north and Judah in the south that if they continued in their idolatry of worshipping other gods, then his judgment would fall upon them. Well, for Israel, that judgment came in the year 722 BC, 
when the Assyrians, who were the world superpower of their day, came and defeated Israel and led them away captive. And sometimes they are referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel, that no one knows what happened to them after that. Essentially, they ceased to exist as a nation. But the prophet Jeremiah, famous Old Testament prophet, warned that the same would happen to Judah in the south unless they turned to God. And he declared that Jerusalem would be destroyed and that the temple would be plundered by the Babylonians, the new world superpower on the block, and that Jews would be taken away to the land of Babylon for 70 years before they would be allowed to return. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied all of this. And then, in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire came and took the Jews into captivity in Babylon, just as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied. There were many psalms uh, written during this time of exile when they were away in a foreign land, including that uh, well-known uh, psalm, Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. Now, if anybody's as old as me here, you will remember in the late 70s, there was a, a pop group called Bonnie M who had a hit record with that, uh, that, those verses very much of a sort of a Negro spiritual. But the next thing that happened was that Babylon herself, though the new super world power, was itself defeated by another world power, the Persian kingdom. And by the way, you can read any of this in any secular history textbook. The Persians had a different policy about captives, and they were willing to allow the Jews to migrate back to their homeland which they did in dribs and drabs over the next number of years, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And then in 516 BC, they rebuilt the temple, which was in Jerusalem. And if you do the maths there, that's exactly 70 years, as Jeremiah had, had predicted, that from the time that they were exiled as a people, taken captive, that they came back and the temple was rebuilt. Jews continued to return to the homeland, uh, though not all of them, because some of them now had married in a foreign land. They had um, built lives for themselves. They'd had families. But this really brings us up to the year 446 BC. And people had resettled in Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt uh, as a place of worship for the Jewish people. But the walls of the city were in ruins. And as anybody will tell you, the walls of a city are very, very, very important. Because without walls, an ancient city could not defend itself against invaders. So that's a little bit of the background. Sorry if some of you have gone off to sleep. I, I, but it's important to understand what's going on. Otherwise, we will never truly understand, you know, the scriptures. So now let's go to Nehemiah himself. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. He lived in the city of Susa, a modern-day Iran. And one of the jobs of the, the cupbearer to the king was to taste the king's wine to make sure that no one had uh, added poison. It was a trusted position. And the story of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah's brother, who has just been to Jerusalem, coming back 
and telling his brother of the, uh, the plight of Jerusalem that the walls had been broken down and the gates had been burned down. So that's where we are. So let's read this. It's quite a long passage and uh, I'll try to sort of give some explanation as we go on. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the, uh, the God of heaven. Then I said, now this is Nehemiah's prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let's just stop there for a moment. I think uh, there's some good instruction here for us that when we pray, it's a pretty good idea to remind ourselves when we're praying who it is we are praying to. And Nehemiah speaks of God here as the great and the awesome God. The Lord, the God who made the heavens. And from Nehemiah's words, we can see that he saw God not only as great, but he saw him as good. And he saw him as gracious as well, the covenant-keeping God. In other words, as very much we heard in James's prayer this morning, he is a God who keeps his promises. Okay, verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, Nehemiah is a man here that knows his history. He knows all about what the prophets had previously prophesied of God judging Israel if they didn't turn away from their idolatry. And he acknowledges that the Babylonian uh, captivity and destruction of the temple was no one's fault except themselves. It was their fault. And although those who were actually guilty of the idolatry were his great, great, great grandparents, it was their generation, he recognizes also that he and his family were not without fault. For him, it wasn't a matter of pointing the finger at a bygone generation and saying, they were the ones who committed sins against you. But he included himself and his family in that. And this attitude of confession and repentance is always important, I believe. We got the words of uh, John in his letter in the New Testament, that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a great promise that is, isn't it? Okay, <clears throat> moving on. Chapter 1, verse 8. Now, Nehemiah is still praying to the Lord. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So what's going on here is that Nehemiah is just reminding God, do you remember what you said? Do you remember what you said back then? Come on, Lord, keep your promises. I know you're true to your word. 
Please do it, Lord. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant, speaking of himself, success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Now, every time I read that in my Bible, I laugh. I think that's absolutely hilarious. I love this. He is referring to the great King Artaxerxes as this man. The most powerful man on earth in the 5th century BC, he is the Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and Xi Jinping rolled into one. He is a seriously powerful guy, but Nehemiah calls him this man. You see, what's going on here? You know, this prayer really was the result of the time that Nehemiah had spent with God. And after being in God's presence for those days, everyone else, including the great king Artaxerxes, was no big deal to him. And the lesson that's here for us as well is that when we spend time in the Lord's presence, we get a new perspective on the world around us. Nothing or no one seems quite as powerful anymore. Okay, we're going into chapter 2 now. Verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, we're not told whether his sadness over Jerusalem was unintentional, because, you know, if you're down in the mouth, sometimes your face shows it. Like, just, no, no, I won't go there. (laughs) That was a joke. Or maybe he deliberately put on a sad face to entice the king into conversation. We're not told. Either way, he says, I was very much afraid. Yeah, he was very much afraid. But he still did it. Very much afraid, but he still did it. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. So this is his second prayer, but this second prayer wasn't a long prayer like his first one. It was probably just one word. Help. Verse 5. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. So there was no going back now. Artaxerxes and and Nehemiah knew this, had the power of life or death in his hands. Verse 6. We're nearly there. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. He's on a roll now, isn't he? Really is. 
Verse 8, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. Now, Asaph was the Jeff Gould of Susa, okay? <laughs> With his uh, overflowing in timber. Nehemiah was growing in confidence here. And uh, he had the boldness of uh, a guy, really, who had spent time with God. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the, the king granted my requests. Wow, what a great story, isn't it? Absolutely great story. So Nehemiah heard that the walls of the city of Jerusalem had burned down. He was brokenhearted. What he does first, he sits down and he weeps. And then for several days, he moans and he fasts and he prays. And then he prays this incredible prayer. And it's one of the great prayers, really, of the Bible in Nehemiah chapter 1. But what this highlights to us in this narrative is the partnership between prayer and action. I know we're not told directly, but I can well believe that the plan to talk to the king about this was actually birthed in his time of prayer. I believe that it was in the throne room of the king of kings that he got the strategy for a conversation that he would have with a, another king in another throne room. He prayed, but also put legs on his prayers. He needed to do something about it. He needed to go. He needed to bring some terrifying requests to this very, very powerful man. And we see prayer and action coming together. Now, some of you might have come across a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Any of you heard that name? Yeah, quite a few of you. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, theologian, and also anti-Nazi dissident who was murdered by the Nazis towards the end of the Second World War. An amazing man. He was both a man of great prayer and a man of action. And as an influential Christian leader, he stood up to Hitler, which eventually cost him his life. And at the time, Bonhoeffer rebuked many of his uh, fellow Christians in, in, in Germany because they could see what was going on. They could see the concentration camps and the racial hatred and the anti-Semitism and the concept of their coming a master Aryan race. <clears throat> And some of these Christians who were able to see all of that retreated into prayer and resigned themselves to the evil that was happening around them. I can imagine them saying, what, 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 what can we do? This is the way that things are. We will pray, but we'll keep our heads low. Now, there's an 18th century philosopher by the name of Edmund Burke who once said this, he said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. All that tyranny needs to gain, uh, to gain a foothold is for people of good conscience, conscience to remain silent. And according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many Christian, in lead, uh, Christian leaders in Germany were doing the very same thing. And they were prepared to pray, but they weren't prepared to do anything else. Now, personally, when I read that story, I didn't know how I felt about it. Because I don't know how I would have reacted in a similar situation. We don't, do we? 
we don't. I hope that I would have had the, the courage in order to do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, but I don't know, and you don't know either. But the interesting part in all of this, for me, was that Bonhoeffer criticised those who were willing to pray but were not prepared to act. But he also cautioned Christians who were very much at the front line opposed to the forces of evil, but they were not drawing on the power of prayer. So you're pretty balanced in that. It wasn't just one or the other for him. It was those who were acting without prayer and those who were only praying. And he himself was a man of both prayer and action. It reminds me of a conversation that uh, Bono, uh, singer-songwriter and lead vocalist for the rock band U2, the uh, conversation that he had with Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu. Tutu at the time was heavily involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of post-apartheid South Africa in the late 90s. And uh, some of the stuff that he went through was just a hor horrible stuff. The, the stories that he had to listen to were gruesome, electric shock treatments and beatings and torture and abuse of pregnant women. And they had a practice there as well of uh, necklacing, which was a, a diabolical practice of placing burning tires around people's necks. And Bono asked Archbishop Tutu how he might manage to find time for, for prayer and meditation with all of this stuff going on. And this is what uh, Archbishop Tutu replied. He said, what are you talking about? I can imagine him saying that. <laughs> do you think that we'd be able to do all this stuff if we didn't, speaking of prayer and meditation? In other words, I thought the great answer, what he was saying, is that prayer was absolutely essential for him, that he couldn't have coped without it. He couldn't have dealt with all the stuff that he was dealing with in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission without prayer. And I think that prayer very often provides us with the action we are to take, the strategy, as well as providing us with the enabling power of what God is calling us to do. I know it's a bit of a, a cliché, and you've probably seen it before, it's rather corny, I know. Seven prayerless days makes one week. But it does include a very important message there. I was uh, reading the newspapers this week and watching television news, as probably many of you have been, and uh, I was very disturbed, very sad again to uh, witness another shooting in California. Yeah? It's, uh, when is this going to end? Uh, 13 people on this occasion were killed. It was only a couple of weeks ago before that, there were 11 worshippers, Jewish worshippers, who were massacred in uh, Pittsburgh in a synagogue as they were worshipping. And as I was looking uh, at this this week, I came across a really interesting article uh, in the Huffington Post, and uh, its title grab, just grabbed my attention. And it said this, Prayer alone is not enough. Oh, what's that about? In connection with, with, with this. And I, I um, read the article. And the article focused on the way that the American society has just become accustomed to mass shootings. And um, it seems that uh, the usual response at these times of mass shootings from political leaders, well-intentioned, I'm sure, is to 
offer prayers for their victims and for their victims' families. And this article said that prayer alone is not enough. And basically what it was saying is that some action is needed and someone needs to do something about this. And very often, as with most things on the internet, you can do a little bit of detective work and one thing leads to another. And this article led me to another article, this time from the New York Daily News, which ran a front page story when there was a mass shooting just three years ago in 2015. And as you can see there on screen, the title of their front page was God Isn't Fixing This. And the article, as you can see, uh, was fixed on, uh, focused rather, on certain political leaders in the States, well-known people, offering sympathy for these shootings. Uh, and as you can see from that article, the strapline was astonishingly direct. As latest batch of innocent Americans are left dying in pools of blood, cowards who could truly end gun scourge continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes. Who? The directness of that article, that front page article, took my breath away. Cowards! Wow. And here, the journalists were not disparaging or critical of people praying, per se. That was not their target. That was okay. It was rather their message was focused on the lack of action which should always accompany prayer. And just like the other article, prayer alone is not enough. What they were saying is because... Um, you know, don't, don't offer your sen sentiments and platitudes. If you're going to pray, that's great, but make sure that you do all within your power to change the situation. Don't keep giving in to the gun lobby. Prayer and action go together. Quite recently, Pope Francis got this balance again of prayer and action, and he got it absolutely right. Not on this subject, but on another subject, and this is what he says. You pray for the hungry then feed them. That's how prayer works. <laughs> oh, yes. So profound, so simple, so wonderful. You pray for the hungry, then you feed them. That's how prayer works. Reminds me very much of what James writes in his New Testament letter. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm, keep well fed but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it's, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James just as easily might have said, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, I will pray for you. What good is it? You see, let's, let's cut to the chase in, in all of this. There are times, of course there are times, when all we can do is pray. There are some situations in life which are beyond our ability to act. But if that is so, we need to pray, not just talk about prayer. Yes? We need to pray, not just say, I will pray. 
because sometimes I feel that our offer to pray for people is just the polite way to end an awkward conversation very often. Yeah? And our challenge this morning is to be people both of prayer and people of action. Now, praying can be a pretty risky thing to do. I don't know if you knew this. It's, it's, it's quite a dangerous habit, really. Very, very risky is prayer. I have often found that the Spirit convicts me when I pray, and he convicts me about the things that I'm praying about. So as you pray, just be aware that the Lord might actually ask you to do something that you weren't anticipating. Maybe it's something that will take you well beyond your comfort zones, something that will require courage or even sacrifice. If you're not prepared for that, I'm not sure whether I should be saying don't pray. You know, dear me, that could be taken the wrong way. I'm not saying that. No, I'm not saying that. I just thought it for a moment and then corrected myself. Dear Lord, Please, please, please bring your comfort to the homeless who are facing the freezing temperatures of the winter. And then the Spirit nudges you. And what are you doing about the homeless? Dear Lord, please help Judith and her team in the coffee shop ministry. Lord, bring others alongside them to help. And before you can pray another sentence, you have a thought that has just come from nowhere. And what are you doing on a Tuesday afternoon and a Friday morning? or some other time during the week. Lord, we thank you for the amazing work that you are doing amongst the children in this church. Thank you for Brenda. Thank you for Bev. Thank you for the others who work so hard in many ways and in kids' zone on a Sunday morning. Make it up to them, Lord. And then you hear that still small voice. What about offering to serve one Sunday a month to this incredibly important ministry, yourself? You know full well that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Just think of the joy of a child encountering Jesus through your ministry. And dear Lord, please supply the church with all the finances it needs to serve your purposes in our community. And the Spirit prods you. When was the last time you increased your giving? When you say you trust me, do you trust me in your finances? You see, that's why I say that praying can be a very, very risky business. Because if we are praying sincerely and not merely coming up with well-worn platitudes and cliches, then we need to be prepared to become the answer to our own prayer wherever we can. There's a second challenge too. And that second challenge is the need to cover everything that we are doing, all of our actions, all of our ministry, all of our works in believing prayer. Someone once said, never take on more Christian work than can be covered in believing prayer. That's, a, that's good advice, I believe. You see, it's one thing to prepare excellent, creative, fun activities for children and youth. But what good is it if we are not praying that the Lord might also open their hearts to him. It may be a great privilege for us to meet the social and material needs of people in our community, which we do so well. But we also need to pray that they might come to a place of knowing Jesus 
for themselves. It's wonderful to make great music. And boy, wasn't that great music this morning? To have a creative musical arrangements and to excel in musical ability, which our worship team does. But we also need to pray that our ministry might have a touch of heaven about it. That we are brought into the presence of God together. Otherwise, true worship is being reduced to just singing songs. That's a big difference. It's one thing for Dan and me as pastors to do our best, and we do our best, to put together perhaps an interesting, inspiring talk for a Sunday morning. And it's quite a huge relief to both of us when it comes together before a Saturday night, so we get some sleep that night. <laughs> Doesn't always. <laughs> but you see, never mind what kind of stuff that we bring put together to bring to you on a Sunday morning, never mind how interesting or inspiring or well-organized that material is, we too need more than anything else the anointing of God upon us. You know, I'm, I'm so aware over the years that some of what I thought were my best ever sermons appeared not to have any effect at all. And I promised Julie that I was going to give this up for a... I can't do this anymore. But there are other times when it seems I tripped over every word, stumbled almost incoherently from various scriptural principles, and yet the Lord touched in a way that amazed me on times. And if the truth be known, it was often because on those times I relied far more on the Lord than I did on my own abilities. <coughs> I could go on about this forever. But I'm sure you get the idea this morning. So, last slide and last thing I'll leave you with, okay? Pray for a good harvest. <laughs> but keep on hoeing. You get the message. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you offered more than fine-sounding words, sentiment without sacrifice. You left heaven's glory to fulfill your Father's will. And I pray, Lord, that you will challenge us and continue to challenge us to be both people of prayer and people of action in equal measure. For you are glory and praise, we pray. Amen.